I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. I'm joined today by John Gawley, who is the lead singer and rhythm guitarist of the band Portugal The Man, a group who, after five independently released albums and another three on Atlantic Records, found crossover success around the world with their 2017 album Woodstock and the hit song Feel It Still, which, by the way, won a Grammy for Best Pop Duo slash Group Performance in 2018. Like many in the creative community, the band's career was put into neutral during the pandemic, but they're back with a new album, Chris Black Changed My Life, and back on the road this summer. John, thanks for hanging with me for the podcast, and I know that right now you're somewhere in Tennessee getting ready to do Bonnaroo tomorrow. Yeah, we're just outside of Manchester. I think we're about 30 minutes away, just kind of chilling out, getting ready for, it's basically our first show back, our first show around the album lock. So that's cool. Starting to play some of these new songs. Yeah, I want to talk about the album, but I also want to talk a little bit about the beginnings of uh, of the group. I was thinking about your journey, which we're going to get into, but started off, I guess, in high school. Some of you guys met 20 years ago. And this year, you're back out there with some big, big shows and playing some massive festivals like Bonnaroo. And for me here in L.A., it doesn't get any better than the Hollywood Bowl. You're going to be playing there later this year. Do you just pinch yourself sometimes when you wake up in the morning that you have this life yeah i do you know I, this band is so funny when we were we were houseless for years we had shared a vehicle up until the last you know maybe five years ago four years ago i wake up every single day and i cannot believe i live in a house when i go and pick up groceries i can't believe i have a car to go pick up those groceries I do look back on it. Like, there's some like really specific moments that these are like the the things that changed everything. Like, when we signed to Atlantic, we rented a house together, and we finally had just enough. Even with six of us all living together, we we had a house that we lived in together. Uh, we got our like signing bonus, and all of us. The first thing anybody bought was a mattress because that would make you feel like I'm. I finally have a room. I have like a space. That, that was the only thing we bought. It was like a mattress and a TV. It's what, what we all got. And and that was kind of everything we needed. So I, I, I think about that every day. I, I, it's hard to not. You started this band with people that you went to school with. And I know that there was, there was another group first that you were invited to join. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, the genetics of, of this group. Yeah, so th- this band... I mean, it really started way back. I had dropped out of school after sixth grade. I, I said, I'm, I can't go back to school. I don't, I, I have a lot of anxiety. I don't really like being in public. I don't like being around a lot of people. Um, I know it's weird considering what we do now, but it, it'll all make sense. So I was a really shy kid. I did homeschool seventh and eighth grade. Back to school freshman year and I, I have this teacher, uh, I, the only course I really liked taking, I really liked social studies and current events. You know, I liked reading about what was happening in the world. I, I liked kind of like reading those newspapers. I liked taking, uh, taking notes on everything. That's kind of that, that calmed my brain. Mr. Stearns, one day, he wheels in a TV and he says, hey, I got to show you guys this. This is not social studies. It's Hanson playing Bob, like <laughs> playing their hit song, and he plays this video for us, and he says, "That kid, that drummer, is younger than you." 
this is what kids are capable of. And I've never gotten to thank him for that. But that moment in life, it made such a huge impact on me just seeing, oh, wow, that's a kid playing music that I just got shown in Alaska. And just in my little classroom, I was shown this, these kids playing music together. Same time, I'm playing hockey. So I'm like skating every day. I go to the ice rink. Silver chair is playing. That's a kid playing music that I'm hearing in Alaska. It was still Alaska. I go to school one morning and I don't know Eric and, and Zach at the time. They're a year older than me. And they're, they're in the, the commons area, the foyer of, of our school, and they're covering Flayer, uh, Cannibal Corpse, Sepultura, uh, Rage's Machine. They're covering these like super political songs, like really gross, like lyrically Cannibal Corpse. And the Slayer, just like technically like just rad and going, wow, this is so cool. If kids can play music, they can write it, you know, and those, that lesson kind of just like stuck with me. So you fast forward from that point. I, I had watched this. I just started making music in my, my bedroom. So I was using cake, cakewalk at the time to record uh, little, really kind of crappy demos. You know, a, a really funny story that I don't really talk about a lot is I actually sent those demos out to people because I wanted to be a songwriter. I just wanted to write songs. I didn't want to front a band. I didn't want to do any of that stuff. What people? Band, it's, it's so funny. I was sending out my record to, and, and these are just bedroom demos that I, I really just like, I like practicing writing songs. And I, I guess for anybody who doesn't know my history, growing up in a family of dogs and mushers, um, we grew up on Motown, Sam Cooke, Otis Redding, The Supremes. Like we grew up on this really tight songwriting. I just love songwriting. I love structure, but I also love hip hop. I love all these things. So I sent, I sent these CDs out to labels. It was all like Southern California labels. I'm pretty sure Fearless was on the list. Um, and I'm pretty sure I got letters back from most of these people that I sent set the cd to but uh somebody had passed it along somehow it got in the hands of this hip-hop label and i remember they were called castlevania with a k and i looked it up i couldn't find it i like you know like what scam or not like this dude's following me and he's he's like i got a hip-hop label i want to put out your music and we talked a few times and man the third time i talked to this dude he says you know i i, I want to sign you guys I, I would really, I'd love to talk to the girl who sings for the band. <laughs> and I remember when he said that, I was just like, yeah, dude, I'm an Alaskan kid. I work construct. I'm a carpenter. You know, I may have done, did gymnastics growing up. Like I, but I am just like mortified. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll let you talk to the girl next time we talk. And I never talked to him again. I was just like, man, no, I'm never singing for a band again. I'm not going to sing out. Oh my God, that's crazy. And, you know, it's, it's just funny though, because I, I grew up on so many of those artists, you know, so, so many of those female singers and like Ron Gorbison and Jean Pitney and these, like, I always loved those singers that could do that, like really kind of crazy falsetto and like mm. the chest voice where it was like, I, I loved that tone. You know, I loved like being able to sing really high. My dad used to do it all the time. He would sing these like falsetto parts in the car and I, we would just, I just loved it. But yeah, it was like really, it was really embarrassing when he said that. It was from that point that I, I had sent out these CDs to a bunch of people. And yeah, it was, a, it was a weird moment in my life where I was just like, I don't think I should be doing this. I need to find a singer. Start this part of the journey. So how'd you end up in Oregon? 
Well, one of the people that got this, this CD was Zach. So I always looked up to Zach. Um, he was like, he's a homecoming gang in our school. Zach is like, the, he's the nicest dude in the world. Everybody wants to hang out with Zach. I sent it to him and he's living in Oregon with a bunch of Alaskans. And they called me one day and it was just, it was so, my girlfriend had just broken up with me. It was like one of those moments and you live in a small town. So you're like, I should really just get out of here. Yeah. Cause you can't avoid seeing people in small towns. Yeah. Gotta see them all. So they asked me to come down and visit. And first of all, they like asked me if we got the band and they're like, we're going to name our band this. They're like, is that cool? And I'm like, yeah, it's cool. Whatever. Fly down there. And just on the plane ride down, I, I made a promise to myself that I'm going to do everything opposite of what I would normally do. I, I would never sing for a band, you know, but I, I get down there and they go, hey, we really like your songs. We sing for our band. Do you want to just come and play a couple shows? Right. I was like, okay, like a chance to not be the shy kid who's just like always been terrified of these things. It's kind of like facing your fears, you know, hey, there's a spider under this box, like lift it up. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's scary. It's so scary. But I, I went and played these shows and, and dude, we got signed off like our fifth show. That's insane. We got signed to Rise Records. It was on that first trip. And I mean, just Alaskan work ethic. It's, it is funny looking back at that. Like, of course, this band with no singer I mean, Dewey Halpas was singing for the band at the time, but like they're asking me to come and sing. So we're just, I'm singing a few of the songs, Dewey's singing a few songs. So I'm singing what I know. And it's just so funny. Of course, they had five shows booked in the month that I was visiting them. Like to leave it to Alaskans to just be like, yep, we're going to play every single, can we play the Paris Theater Wednesday night? Great, we'll be there. And we went and did that. And it was, it was so fun. And, it was short-lived. That, that band was, it was so quick. It was there and gone. Put out our first record January 24th, 2003. And it's not really like the realistic view of the music industry. I know it's like kind of like fairy tale. Like that's how it's, how it's supposed to look like in your dreams. But we ended up there and eventually signed to, to Fearless. And the band, the one thing I really learned from that band and I, you know, I don't know how it is in these other bands. You know, I, I assume Flea is doing a lot and Frashante is doing a lot and Chad Smith is doing a lot. Like there, there's a lot of people in these bands. Like when I look at bands, they're so interesting to me because my experience in it was like, like, oh, wow, we need a creative director. <laughs> like we need some sort of, somebody needs to be in charge. And I remember sitting in the back of the van and the, some stuff had gone down at one point. And I just kind of said, you know what? Like, I, I need to like raise my hand and say like, hey, I think I know how to fix this, mm. you know? And we couldn't fix that band, you know? It, it's so, again, like it's hilarious looking back at this stuff and going, it sounds like five different people with five different ideas playing in a band. <laughs> and that is what high school bands sound like. They all this sound like that. This band we should we should mention was called Anatomy of a of a Ghost, and obviously it sort of led into Port, Port, Portugal. The man. When did you actually move to Portland? So I would say I moved in two thousand five, two thousand six, somewhere around there. Mm. Really, like I think the Alaskan in me would say 
probably when I finally rented a house. So probably 2013 is when I moved. That's how my brain works. Because the, the only reason I left Alaska was to pursue music. Right. And it was just so unattainable from there. You, you came, out of, came out of the shoot with a bang, so to speak. I mean, immediately people were taking notice of, of the music that you were making. And as I mentioned in the intro, you made a handful of independent records before you ended up with Atlantic. What was it like moving from making records independently for a small label to, I mean, Atlantic Records? I mean, it doesn't get too much bigger. Uh, they are the coolest. My favorite people in music, um, Craig Gowan and Julie Greenwald. I'll tell you how we got there, and then I'll tell you why we signed to Atlantic. Please do. Because I, I absolutely love these people. We're a bunch of punks. Dude, like, we, we grew up, like, as reckless as you, you can be. Like, yeah. that thing looks big. Let's jump off of it. Like, that's the way I grew up. A rice cooker and a bag of vegetables. That's how we toured. It was always, like, we spent a dollar a day on food. When this band started, we screen printed shirts on the road. Like we learned everything from Minor Threat and Fugazi. You know, Ian McKay, like, thank you for teaching us how to be a band. That was like a huge part of where we come from is DIY. Oddly enough, we were playing Bonnaroo 2009. We had put out five records and we're out, we're playing Bonnaroo. Delta Spirit is supposed to play right before us. And I remember showing up here and going, Oh my God, this is kind of crazy. We're playing Bonnaroo. Wow. Like Beastie Boys are here. Like, yo, like, I, I think I saw MCA. Like, I think I saw like, wow, this is like a crazy experience. We're walking around backstage and we go to our, our stage, Delta Spirit is supposed to play before us, but there's all these storms. So Delta Spirit's flight is delayed. They'd missed their set. So we're, we're given an hour and a half never happens at festivals as everybody knows two hours to set up time to check your line like check everything make sure it sounds good and shake the nerves because i'm still like i still have a lot of anxiety on stage like and it's so they used to give you these dvds when you would play these sets so like you play this set it starts raining everybody's forced to come into the tent you know, it, it's like, it's so packed. It's the biggest show I've ever seen in my life. And we get done and they, they give us the DVD. Here's your show. This is what you did tonight. We have a little inverter in the van. And we have our 14-inch <laughs> TV in there with a D DVD player in it. Play the DVD. And I remember looking around the van and Rich, our manager's in there with us too. <laughs> and we're looking around and we're like, is that, uh, that sounds like a real band. Like nobody ever had any intent of being a real band. Like we, we just, I like screen printing shirts and we like music. <laughs> so we travel around and wow, this is such great opportunity. Like I got to go to Europe, like that's so cool. But nobody ever thought we were like a real band. Like we were just art kids from Alaska trying to figure things out. And we figured it out that night. And Andrew Luffman was there from Atlantic and he hit us up and I liked Andrew. I, I still love Andrew. I still talk to Andrew quite a bit. I remember he brought me into Atlantic. So this is our journey to Atlantic. He, he's trying to sign us and we're like, yeah, right. Sign to a major label. I don't think so. Like, I don't need it. We already have our own label. I don't really have time for this. And we're still like punk kids, you know, Andrew brings me in. It's like, come by the office. You got to come by. 
like, okay, I like Andrew. I'll go in. I'll check it out. New experiences. Do the opposite of what you would normally do. So I go in there with them. I remember I'm sitting in the hall. Andrew's like doing some like real business, not dealing with Portugal. This is where he's doing real work. And Craig Kalman walks by. He's the president. Yeah. Yeah. Craig Kalman's the president of Atlantic Records. I do not know this, by the way. Craig walks by and he says, uh, I don't know how we started talking, but he starts asking what I'm listening to. And I start asking what he's listening to. And I'm like, oh, man, that's cool. Like, can, can we trade emails? Like, can we, cause I want to hear what you're listening to. Can, would you share a playlist with me? And Craig's like, oh, man, I would love to. Just knowing Craig, like, he's, he's so down to, like, share music with you. So he and I start emailing. And we're sharing music playlists. Then we're sharing, like, our favorite Kung Fu movies. And we're sharing, like, sci-fi. And we're talking, like, quite a bit, too. We're, like, talking, like, once a week. Craig and I, like, like, oh, man, you, you know this movie, you know, like, uh, White Lotus. Like, yeah, like, we're kind of, like, throwing out these, like, kind of, like, deep like, kung fu films and sci-fi and just talking about music. And I remember after, like, six months of this, I email Rich and I go, I think we should sign to Atlantic. I really like this dude, Craig. He's, he's really cool, man. Like, I... He has great taste in music. Like we kind of we talk all the time. Send the email. I mean, it's been two minutes. Rich calls me and he goes, "How long have you been talking to Craig Kalman?" I go, "Oh, I don't know. Since we went in with with Andrew, uh, he's the president of Atlantic, and it's still to this day. I don't care who he is. Like he's Craig and he's rat. You know, like I had a really good experience with." Somebody who shares that with you. I mean, knowing Craig for 20 years now, I mean, 20 years, 13 years, I've known Craig. That's just the type of person he is. He just loves music. Like he, he like lives and breathes music. And I could not be, I couldn't picture myself at another label that didn't care. Like this, the amount that they care about their artists. They care about the people around them. I mean, Julie has built that, that Atlantic, it's 50% women at Atlantic. It's, it's such a cool space to be in. Julie is hard as hell. And Craig is just like, he's just an artist, like floating around, like sharing music with you. And that's all he's ever been to me. And I, that's, that's why we're at Atlantic. Like I, I, the history is amazing, but people that love music, that's what I want to be around forever. So you, as you said, you know, you got the thing. Anything, yeah. For the song, feel it still, and you're on top of the world. I mean, you've got a hit record. You're touring and uh, getting ready for another record, and then the pandemic hit. And I'm guessing, like everyone else, you had downtime to to reassess life and work. And when I was talking to you a couple of weeks ago, you talked about challenging the process for making a, a new record. And we talked about producers, and you've worked with some amazing producers: uh, Danger Mouse, John Hill, Paul Q. Caldery, Mike D. And then this new album, again, which I mentioned in the intro, Chris Black Changed My Life. You went with a producer called Jeff Basker, who's worked with just a couple of hit makers like Harry Styles and Beyonce. What does a producer bring, bring to the record? And, and how did you approach making a record or writing songs that became the record? Uh, were they written before COVID? Were they written during the pandemic? How, how did you wind it all up? Yeah, most of it was written after the pandemic uh we had started some of it songs like champ 
Champ was the very first song I started at Sandy Bodecker's place in Portland. And that was like a demo that I, I had brought in. I said, I, there's something in this. I was kind of singing about family and community. I'm like, wow, people really stand by you through some like heavy times. Um, I, so I've been working on this song. This is before we met Jeff. So I, I met Jeff after I, I started Champ. Out of everybody I've ever worked with, I think the person I would say is like, that's a really great person and great friend of mine. They've all been really great people. They've all been really great artists and they've all been really genuine. I became really close with Jeff and we spent a lot of time together. It, I, and I feel like I learned so much from him. Just there, there's something that they'll all tell you when you go in there. And I'm sure Rick Rubin has probably said it on some somewhere at some point. <laughs> right. You all go into the studio to make a hit. It's just, it's not really how it works. It's not how Feel It So worked for us. Feel It So was born out of listening to the song that they thought was a hit and them mixing that and me being like, this makes me want to feel myself. I'm going to go into the other room and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to play a bass line that really soothes me and makes me feel better. And Asa Taconi happened to be in that room when I was playing that bass line that I had played for everybody. And Asa goes, hey, Jay, what is that? Oh, it's just, it's a bass line. I just play it. Can I record it real quick? And that's how Feel It Still was written. Mm. There was nobody, there was no like master hit writer in the song, in, mm-hmm. in the room. Like Asa and I, neither one of us has done anything like that. Like it's, it came out of just knowing that I care about music and I just, you know, I didn't like what was happening in this room. So I just left and wrote th- that song. So going in with Jeff, it was honestly, I just wanted to meet the dude that works on like Indoates and Heartbreak and Dark Twisted Fantasy. Like, I, I just like, we have an excuse. Like, I have a song that gives me an excuse to get into the room with Jeff Basker. Like, please let me in there. And you see why all these people work with him because he's. Not only like he's a super talented producer, but just as a musician, he's he's so like everything is so intuitive. It's just he just follows his as music should be. Like you just kind of let it kind of flow through and see where it takes you. And it's he's so like linear in the way he he writes, and he can make it very like structured. But he does these things that I I think are just really special and unique to Jeff. And it. Making a record with him. I, I've never made a record where we recorded anything start to finish. And we did a lot of that with Jeff. We went in with Homer Steinweiss playing drums from the Dap Kings. So we went into the Dap Kings studio and Homer played drums start to finish to tape. You know, one mic, two mics. You need more hi-hat? I'll play it a little bit louder. And Jeff would jam synths on that. And I'd play bass or guitar or whatever was around. And just such a, a cool experience. And, and, and total opposite to, to the last record. Who's Chris Black? Chris was uh, Baz. <laughs> Happy Mondays. Chris was our, our hype man. And again, I'm going to do air quotes that people can't uh, see. But uh, I think that's just what people are like. Oh, we got to call him something. He's an MC. He's a hype man. No, Chris is our friend. Chris, Chris came on tour with us and he just made me laugh. Yeah, he, he brought this life back into the band that was just missing. It was this it's hard to keep it going, keep that feeling alive, like in relationships, in, in life. Like how do you, you, you are always chasing that muse. And we put out these records and 
it was just getting to this point where like, you know, I'm like living in Malibu and living on the beach, like getting smoothies every day, like making this new record. This is before Woodstock came out. So I'm working on this stuff and it's just, it feels like, God, I just need around, to be around people that make me laugh. That, like, that have nothing to do with this like other world of like trying hard to make a hit song or like a different record. Chris, to me, like he just took me out of that. I mean, I, I don't think I would have written Feel It Still without somebody like Chris around. I don't think I would have written things like that. But he, he would come out on stage and he would just laugh and dance and he would do little like popular dances and the audience would do it back. He'd be like, that's your audience. <laughs> that's your audience. And it, it took the pressure off of me. If he was that person out there, like he took the pressure off of me to be a front man or to, to be anything because he, he was so good with that energy. And, yeah, he's so good with that space. And he sadly passed away in 2019. And in that, I lost this, like, I guess I got to be me again, you know? And it's right before this pandemic shuts everything down. And it was a pretty difficult time for me trying to figure out who I am and just realizing that I've had a lot of Chris Blacks in my life. Jack was that for a really long time in the band. Then you get to, you know, you just, you get too close and like, you know, each other too long. And Danger Mouse was that, you know, he was that person. He made me feel safe. and was like, yo, you make whatever record you want to make. <laughs> it gives you that wink. It's like, we're in charge in here. Like there's nobody coming in this circle. You are safe. And we are here to make good music. Yeah, I guess, I guess in losing him, I, I, it made me think a lot about family and a lot about the people in our lives and how we all have people like this. Everybody has somebody like this. I mean, for, for me, like predating Chris, I would say Nick Ronson changed my life. And it, through his guitar playing on Bowie at the Beat, hearing Moon Age Daydream yeah. live and going, wow, that is a terrible guitar tone. How is it so perfect? <laughs> I got to tell you something. I, I have a window open on my laptop right now with Moon Age Daydream done on the old Grey Whistle test. Wow, cool. <laughs> and I just think it's really fucking weird that that came across my computer two days ago and I just left it. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I just left it open. And now you're talking about Mick Ronson doing the BBC sessions. Too cool. Something spooky's going on. So I, I, I would imagine that having a hit song buys you a little currency, a little, a little time in your, in your head to be able to go and make the next record. And as you mentioned, you know, not going in to make a hit, going in to make the record that, that you want. You're out now touring this, this record, but it's been a while in between, right? It's been, it's been, a, it's like you guys were releasing albums quite frequently and then literally five years in between albums. Where are you at now as you're ready to head out and play these songs? I guess, like I said, I've never written, I, I've, I've obsessed over structure my whole life. And growing up on Motown, you, you become really like, yo, how did uh, <laughs> Bill Withers write Ain't No Sunshine in two minutes? All right, so I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Like that, it breaks it up. Oh, it's so perfect. It, it, it takes up this space and it takes you out of the song for a second. And he just repeats the same lyric. It's the same chord progression. 
I, I love structure. Like I, I've, I've absolutely loved it. Going into this, this record, I've, I've never written anything start to finish. I'm excited to play it. I, it's, it's honestly like I had a really weird feeling when we were in Texas listening to the, the album going, I think this is as good as I can do this. And I really did think like, if this was the last record I was going to make, I, I would want it to be this one. You know, and, and that's, that's my feeling at the time, you know, we all have different, like we go through different waves of emotion and feelings and depressions. <laughs> and I'm excited to, to play this, this album. It's felt really good to play it live. It's, it's about all these things in, in our lives. I like that I get to do it with Chris. You know, that's so cool. I get to do it with Chris, you know, and I get to like, talk about people who changed my life and I think it's such a really exciting thing to do and a really powerful thing to do is to talk about the people who changed our lives and why we're here like how I got to this moment how you got to the show you know there are things that changed changed all of our lives and I'm looking forward to seeing what inspires me in, in these tours is this our last album I, I don't know, or, you know, I, I but I, I want to go out and see where that takes me. Because I know when I finished it, I just thought, I want to go straight into outer space and write linear frog <laughs> math. Like, I want to do something that is so far removed from this. You know, is the band still built for that? Because I, I am, I want to. Let's get into these questions that I ask all my guests. And we start at the beginning. What is your first musical memory? My first musical memory is listening to Here Comes the Sun with my little sister, my little baby sister. And <laughs> laughing when he goes, Here Comes the Sun. Him doing that with the guitar, we just found so hilarious. Like, how cool. Like, these people are so cool. So that's my first. I would say that's my first. That that's my favorite song ever. It's so good. Like it's, it's stupid to even say. Like the Beatles, the best band of all time. Well, yeah. What about buying music? What was the first music you bought with your own money? So it would have been weird now. It'd probably be Bad Hair Day or whatever you put out because we had to eat it. We had all this stuff. Our neighbors would give us these cassettes. I think Bad Hair Day is probably the first thing I I, I would have bought or something around there. Mm. But that led me on this path of like uh, discovering Nirvana through Weird Al and Oasis. That's weird. I know how weird. <laughs> but Weird Al introduced me to so much music because my neighbors were, they were kind of like hardcore. Like they went to church every day or every Sunday, you know, they went to church and they didn't listen to the radio. I live in the woods. I don't listen to anything. I don't know what any of this is outside of Motown and like 60s, my dad's record collection. Mm. But they would show us Weird Al and I'd be like, wow, this is really cool. Oh, he's doing other people's music. That's cool. I wonder what that other music sounds like. And that was a thing like, that's my favorite thing about Al is he crosses over into so many people's worlds. <laughs> Christian families will sit down, listen to Weird Al every, and think like, this is the greatest thing of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll share it with you. And 
I'll be like, wow, I don't believe any of that, but I, I do believe in weird now. Well, you, you're tooling around the wilderness with your folks when, when, when you're a kid. When, when did you get to go see live music? First concert was Pantera. I think it was 96, 97, 96. Something like that, 101 Proof Tour for Great Southern Trend Hill. And from that moment on, I saw every concert I could. So anything that came to Alaska, I would go see it. Nothing ever came close to Pantera, I will say. <laughs> Nobody has ever been as good. You know, but I, I'm going to throw out the problematic sides of Pantera for a second and say, <laughs> that's one of the greatest bands of all time. Like, you cannot deny it. Like, your lead singer's on stage and Dimebag starts ripping a solo and Phil just turns and looks at him and says, that's fucking badass. Who does that? Like, nobody does that. Liam, Liam is the closest person to that never once. Never once did Liam turn to Noel. And like, that's fucking badass. No, like, and you can't say it like Phil. Like, they are, like, they are as deep, like, trash as it gets. And it is so, that damn was perfect. Like, that's, a, that's as good as a show can be. What do you listen to when you want to dance? Dance music. Sheesh, I was just talking about this earlier. You know, this, the songs are really, so I discovered a lot of music through, like, Oasis was doing the Beatles. So I knew that. I was like, oh, you can make music today because you, you just do the Beatles. And that's like, you can just borrow. Oh, Nirvana, like he's kind of doing a Lennon thing and chord, like weird chords and really great melody. Like it's kind of like Lennon. I was hearing these bands like kind of like referencing the 60s. Uh, the first things that I heard that was they weren't doing that really was Come to Daddy, Aphex Twin. Hearing Aphex Twin for the first time, hearing The Prodigy, mm. that was like, whoa, this is different. Fatboy Slim, like that to me is like, I love a breakbeat and I love a breakbeat that can go to halftime out of nowhere and just like put me in it, you know, that's, that's some like hectic, I like some wild energy. But by the way, if you need somebody to dance with you on stage at the Hollywood Bowl, give me a, give me a call. I'll, I'll show up. I'm kidding. Oh I'm kidding. my God, you are coming with us. <laughs> it is happening. Do you listen to music? When you're sad, and, and if you do, what do you listen to? Do you listen to music to take you out of it, or do you delve into it? Yeah, I used to listen to music a, a lot. Like, when I was was sad, it's weird. I, I feel like I make music. when um, there, There's a sweet spot for it, though. If I'm too sad, I don't do anything. You know, you get, you get lost in it really easily. So it's something I, I never really thought about the power of that until working on this new record, I think, coming out of the pandemic. We have our daughter, Frances, was just a couple of years ago, was diagnosed with this neurodegenerative disease called DHDDS. And it was this really heavy moment for us because we always knew something was wrong. You know, we we're like, there's something happening. Um, oh, it's spectrum or it's ADHD. And it made it, it made it really hard. It's just been difficult for me to make music because I would go, why is she so sad like why she's so upset like she's she's this really happy that's like really bright i mean this kid is incredible like to watch her laugh is my favorite thing in the world and there are these moments and it's kind of those difficult parts of parent and and in specifically what francis is dealing with so dhdds 
it's, it's neurodegenerative. So it, it's like a dementia on kids. It's like Parkinson's. Parkinson's is like, uh, she has tremors. Mm. And you watch them get, like it progresses. So like, and it feels rapid to me. I mean, I feel like I haven't seen her like spasm like that. And it's, it's all, it's all happening really quickly. And it makes it hard to make music. So it, it wasn't until getting out of the pandemic and going into a room with Asa Ciccone, who, who I've, I've collaborated with a lot. He's one of my close friends. Just went in with him and just started singing what came to mind. And songs like Anxiety came out and Doubt. And it, it's, it's in those moments that you realize like, the healing power of music. I mean, it was weird sitting down, like I'm out in LA and uh, first lyric out of my mouth, I'm, I'm like, they're both these chords, it's got this weird timing to it. I don't want to be here. It's the first lyric out of my mouth. And it was really cathartic. It was just like, oh, I felt like I needed to say that. Like, I just needed to say that out loud. You know, all, all of these songs lead you somewhere. It leads you out of that. And it leads me out of it. You know, it, it is chasing that idea and going, yeah, things are hard right now, but like, I got to look ahead. I got to do the best I can. You know, that's what songwriting is to me is it's like, you kind of like follow things. You tell your story and it's got to be honest. And it's helped me a lot. It used to help me a lot listening to it, but it helps me more today writing. The treatment for what Francis is, is experiencing is experimental, right? There are treatments that are being developed, but nobody really knows what to do right now. And, and I know that you have a GoFundMe page because medical insurance is just doesn't cover jack shit really, does it? Yeah. How crazy is it? We talk about the shiny thing on the shelf. We got the Grammy, you know, like that's, that's something it's hard to not think about it. You, you look at it, you go, okay, well, Francis, we got this. We can, we're going to make this happen. And then you look at the cost of all of this stuff and it's, you have to develop these treatments. We don't even have, we were talking about like, okay, well, let's sell everything we have. We still don't have enough. Like it's like, how is the system working? Like it's, it's not like, it's so broken if we're not helping each other. And my goal with this is, so we have a, we have a GoFundMe setup for Francis and it's to, to find drug repurposing for, um, her symptoms and other kids with DHTDS. She's one of six, by the way of her specific genetic condition. In the world. Yes, yeah, six in the world. And then there's a general condition of DHDDS, a general mutation. And it is, uh, there's 70. So e either side you step on, like it's such a small group. But if, if we can work on, if we can use our platform to help drive people to these places, FrancisChangedMyLife.com, ChrisBlackChangedMyLife.com, PortugalMan.com, I believe, leads you there as well. There's a toggle where you can donate. But if we can advance this research and use our space to advance this research, if we can do this stuff together mm. with people, and again, it, it is about community. It's like, we have to do this stuff together. And I want to help other people do it too. Like, I want to see these costs come down. I want to see it be affordable. I want to see it be a pill, not a spinal tap. Mm. I want to see it be cured, not just a treatment. You know, I would like to see that for, for everybody. And, it's uh, really hard watching your kid go through this stuff. We've always been extremely involved in thing, things like this, social social causes and community efforts. Um, I've never had to do it myself. And it, it's very humbling to 
know that we need each other. You, you mentioned that throughout the band's history, you've been involved in activism and philanthropy in, in different ways, conservation, music in schools, uh, mental health awareness. We live in anxious times. How, how important is it, do you think, for artists to use their platforms? Now, in, in this particular situation, this is very personal because it's it's you and it's it's your daughter. But you were involved in raising funds for, for things be, before this. And, and so I, I guess I come back to it. I mean, it would seem to me that when you have a platform, use it, right? Playing music is, um, you start in the out, on the outskirts of town. You know, you start in the, wherever the promoter can afford, like the 250 person venue. And it's usually outside of town. It's just on the outskirts. You start there and you hang with these people. You hang with, these are your people. That's who you hang with. You sleep on their floors and you eat at their houses. We, we hang out, we, drink together, we, we talk. You move in a little bit closer. The next venue is, is on like a little bit nicer street. You know, there's a cafe around the corner. Maybe there's a cafe built in and you get to eat there. You don't have to spend money on food and you're kind of blown away by, you could have $15 worth of food here. And you're going, wow, $15, that is so exciting. Like we get to, we get to eat tonight. And then the next show, like you go to the next place and it is, it's going to be like the, the TLA in Philly or, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, an auditorium. It's a little bit bigger. You're downtown. And, and the clientele, like the people that come to the shows, they change along the way too. So you kind of end up meeting this whole scope of people. You eventually meet billionaires. You meet some of these people. And you, you see, like, it, it's the weirdest thing when people say, like, you're a musician, stay out of politics. Mm. Because, yo, I was talking to you last week, dog. <laughs> I know you. Like, you were at my show. You're the guy sitting on the floor reciting my lyrics that doesn't understand what the song's about. It went over your head. You know, like, hey, we're around all of these people. It doesn't matter, like, what your political beliefs are. Like, we all end up at the same shows. Like, we all appreciate the same thing. I mean, that's a famously born in the USA. <laughs> People not understanding the lyrics. Like Bruce Springsteen had to come out. He has to tell you what the song is about because we meet all of you. We see everybody. And, and it's, it's always just been the craziest thing to me when, when we get those notes, stay out of politics, stay out of my business, stay out of this. It's all we do is observe. All we do is sit, we just write about our experience. That's, that's all, all anybody's doing. And I, I, would, I would take some note take note and say you know if bruce is writing about this if the boss is writing about this it's something he's seen along the way and he's experienced and we're around all of you you know it's hard to not care about people when you're around them every day and it's why i i mean i i hate to say this out loud but i i don't really have any respect for artists that don't embrace that and i don't i i, I can't respect it i can't you know, you have every opportunity in the world to to see people and, and understand that, like, you know, they're, they're not here because of you. They're here because of the experience. You know, we're here because we're finding something that we appreciate about what you do and we're connecting somewhere along the way. And I think those connections are just, they're, they're so beautiful and they're so important. And it's, 
it's what music and songwriting has always been meant to be. Is this? I'm I'm writing my verse in the in the song. You know, they, and it's going to go to somebody else at some point. You know, you should take it, write your verse. And it's not my song anymore. It's just the sense of like self-importance in any of this is you do it because you learned it from somebody. And that's why we, we always partner with people. And we have an advisory board for our foundation. Yeah, we cover all the overhead for our foundation to make sure that all the money goes to community. I mean, they, I worked really hard so we could to pay our dues you know like you know, that's that's why i'm here i'm not here to to say like we made it cool throw it in the throw it in the scrooge mcduck like vault in the back and they're gonna swim in the money like nobody's trying to do that it's it's about people I, and that's that's what music is meant to be whether you're a pop singer singing somebody else's experience you don't have to write that song like they're, they're really great at following that emotion I have a huge respect for pop singers, by the way. They're such like empathetic people. Frank Sinatra didn't write his songs, but boy, could he sing them. Yeah, there's, that's, that's a beautiful thing too, because you're, you're connecting with the, the emotion. You're connecting with something so much deeper than, than the lyrics. Like it's, you're, you have to hit that. If you don't hit that emotion, it, there's no point. If people see through that, that's, that's the fascinating thing is when people see through the music without even knowing why, they're just like, I don't believe you, you know? If you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Dude, I, I am the worst of this stuff because I don't listen to songs. I listen to like albums or like my song. Because to me, an album is like a linear, that's linear songwriting. It's like, it's that journey. It tells you a story. So if, if I had one song that I would listen to the rest of my life, it's, it's, it would have to be an old Dirty Bastard record or an old Dirty Bastard song because he has so much going on in his music. I love his ad lib. He was just going off in the back. You could hear him. He's in the back of the vocal booth. He's not even on the mic. And then he steps up to the mic out of nowhere and he lines up with himself and doubles the vocal. And then the main vocals off in the back of the room while he takes over. So that is a level of like, I don't know what the fuck is going on in that dude's head, but he knew when to come to the mic and when to walk away. And you know, he's feeling it. So it, any old dirty bastard song, like it, it would, it would be an old dirty bastard song. Do you have a favorite music video? God, I, th I think I do have a favorite music video. Okay. So BC boys were so good at it. Uh, sabotage. Yeah. Great music video. Uh, Devil's Haircut is a great music video. Beck. Um, yeah, Beck. I think I'd probably say Sabotage or Intergalactic. Intergalactic, actually. Because I love all the, like, Japan and, like, these big, like, characters. It's so cool. Do you, do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? So this is, like, something new that I discovered. Something new to you discovered this band the cure recently <laughs> i know this is so stupid people would say it through all the time they're like what do you mean you just discovered the cure i never got it i heard the album pornography in a pizza shop in portland sizzle pie and man i just remember hearing like i'm there with francis and so, and, and i'm like yo this record is 
so rad. Like the, the guitar tone is amazing. Wow, that note selection is so cool. And like four songs in, I go, I know that. Is that Robert Smith? <laughs> I know that voice. That was my musical discovery. My most recent, I would say, because I would say Rosalia, but she's so massive. Like she's so good. Like the cure to me, like that pornography. I, you know what I liked most about it too is seeing where it felt in, it fell in their like catalog. And being like, yo, you wrote that after you had hits. You wrote a record like this. It's so like harsh. And it's, and it's so, I mean, I, I love that album. That, that album is so old. I was still living in England when it came out. I think it came out and I was because I remember owning it when it, when it came out. That's how old I am. It came out in 1982. Crazy. Okay, I can give you something new. You want something new too? Sure. Just for fun. Uh, it was King Cruel, I think. Oh, yeah. And I mean, he's been gone for a while, but our buddy Aaron Brown had shot this video. Easy, easy. He, shot, he went out to, to England and he shot this video with Archie and says like, hey, you should check out this artist. I was working on and shows me the video. And man, if he did not perfectly capture Archie and what King Cruel is and sounds like. So if you haven't seen the video for Easy Easy, it's so perfect because at that time they kept pushing Archie as this like, I would see it and see videos come out and be like, why does he look so slick? Archie is not slick. Archie is not like the, you know, the handsome boy, like, you know, good kid in the suit. He is the like, the reckless weirdo in the suit which is so much more fun he announced archie to me like that he's he's a great talent he's an incredible talent and i I love it his voice his delivery his pocket he doesn't care and cares so much at the same time archie is archie marshall who is king cruel for those of you who don't know and uh it's uh k-r-u-l-e i'm i'm a big fan myself is there a band or an artist that you love, but you feel like they never got the break? I don't know. I, I feel like so many things exist in this. It's kind of like exactly what it, it needed to be, you know? I think Refuse. I mean, Refuse is a band that I, I do think about a lot, and I think they kind of did on Shape of Punk to Come, but I discovered them with Rather Be Dead, which was this hardcore song. And it was kind of like, again, around this discovery of like, oh, Fat Boy Slim and apex twin and hearing all this i'm also hearing hardcore so i'm listening like minor threat and i oh there's a swedish band they have this song rather be dead that's really cool and get that album and then they put out shape of punk to come and i I don't think it's ever really gotten like i guess maybe i've gone back to it i don't it doesn't sound dated to me but maybe it sounds dated you know but they they sampled it, it was this hardcore band that just they sampled jazz and it's hardcore, but there's like break beats and there's dance beats and there's like electronic, there's modular synthesizers and, and it's political and it's shouty, but it's also like structured. It's, it's a really, really incredible record. And I feel like it's, they came back and they did a thing. It's not that big is the thing. Like it, things that exist in my world are, of course I would know about it, but it's like the greater public. Mm. I think that's a band that really had so much going on. It was just so, like, there was so much energy. It was so wild. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? I think I wear it all on my sleeve. I'll listen to anything. 
I, I listen to pop music, man. Like I, I am such a nerd for just sugar melody. And I, I can't say there's anything and I would say guilty pleasure. I think people would claim like Imagine Dragons is a guilty pleasure, you know? But I watched, I watched my daughter sing Believer. She came up from school singing Believer. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That's a good song. <laughs> and then she's singing Thunder. And she's going, Kids Bob, play Thunder. And I'm going, oh, wow, okay, Thunder. Uh, there's a Kids Bob version of it. And that's a band that I feel like gets so much unnecessary hate because who gives a shit? Like, dude, if yeah, I would put, I mean, this is might be controversial to say, but I put you in the same category as people who hate on other people for their personal choices and their personal life and their personal lifestyle. It's like, who cares? It's just music, dude. Like, somebody likes it. Like. Don't don't push your views on everybody else. You know, I like that kids like a magic dragons. And you know what? Radioactive is a good song. And I will fight people for that. <laughs> live and let live, man. Come on. And I find a question. How are you feeling right now? I feel optimistic. I feel hopeful. I feel I feel a lot of love and I feel a lot of uh I feel good because I, I have like, we're talking specifically about musically. I have those like same fears that I've always had. You know, the worst thing in, in the world for any artist is when they hand in the record and they go, I'll see you in three months. <laughs> Whenever everybody else finds you. Right. It's like the scariest feeling in the, in the world. I can't, I can't, outside of like family stuff, like I can't think of anything that's, more difficult than just being like, here you go. I hope, I hope everything works out. But with this, I, it's, I felt so good finishing it. I just felt it did something really special for me that I didn't think I wouldn't think I got my ninth record music is capable of. And it's made me kind of go back and I've been listening to a lot of like Sorry to go on a tangent, but I, it made me listen to a lot of like later Bowie and, and realize like, this is really good. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's weird. Like we kind of like miss these moments in, in, in searching for something new all the time. And I just, I just feel relieved to, to have made this thing. And I want to see where, where it goes. And I, I want to see what it feels like. And I want to, I want to help my daughter. I want to work on our foundation and I, I'm optimistic, I'm optimistic for the future because, uh, I do feel the crushing anxiety that is built up in the world. As Paul Williams put it at the end of our record, Paul and I are sitting in the studio and I don't do duets with anybody. I have a lot of anxiety. I don't like to be, I don't like my producer looking at me through the fucking window, <laughs> hang up the curtain, hang up the sheet, stop looking at me. I will sing it fine. Um, I go in with Paul and we're working on the song Anxiety and I've talked to him a little bit about it, like what it means to me. It's, you know, I've, I'm scared. And Paul is singing and, you know, he stops, stops singing halfway through the song. He's writing really great stuff and it's 
cool melodies and like it's just Paul Williams he's a creative songwriter of all time amazing like, songwriter like, yeah you know, legend um and he starts talking to me and we're in the studio and he just starts saying you know everybody's scared everybody feels this anxiety everybody feels this weight it's like we're watching a forest fire coming over the hill and it's biblical it's cinematic and He's saying to me, if you, if you, if you watch that fire too long, if you get too much to, are too caught up in the beauty of that, that scary thing coming over the hill, it will consume you. And then that's how our album ends. And I, I, I found it really fitting that we have so much going on in our lives. Like, don't let it consume you. You know, that's, that's what I want to go forward thinking. And so I just want to, let's just go do it, man. Let's, life like let's let's go get the next thing see what it is i really appreciate getting a little time with you for for the podcast you're in a hotel room in tennessee and i'm home here in in los angeles and we've just been hanging out for a minute and i'm really grateful thank you yeah thank you dude i was so stoked to talk to you again well i'm excited to sit down and talk to you sometime at the show when you come out to dance yeah when i come and dance <laughs> yeah i'll be there i'll be the guy in the cookie monster outfit yeah, I will be ready. I do have a uh, Bugs Bunny, I have a Sylvester, and a Winnie the Pooh. So I'll take Sylvester. If I can put an order in, I'll put the order in for Sylvester. All right, I got, I got you. I'll bring it out. <laughs> the Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, SparkNetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.